Hi, and welcome into another edition of the Russell Street Report. I'm Tony Lombardi here on Fanimal Radio. Joining us on the program today, we'll have Michael Crawford. Mike does game changes for us on Russell Street Report. We'll get his assessment of Lamar Jackson in 2018 and what we might be able to expect from Lamar going forward into the 2019 season. Also joining us on the program, you've heard him on 105.7 The Fan on weekends. You've also heard him on WGMD down at Delmarva's Peninsula. His name is Mike Popovic. He'll be joining us on the program. But now, leading off, joining us from The Athletic, is the one and only Jeff Zarebeck. Why PMI? I get asked that question all the time and I love answering it. I've been leading this team for 16 years and PMI has been and remains an industry leader. We get all the support of an industry leader national company while managing our loan flow locally. Our realtor partners and our customers get a team committed to customer service. They also get a team that knows our local markets. We closed 2,300 loans last year and the future looks very, very bright. We love telling our story and would love to help you with your next transaction. Reach out to me or anyone on my team anytime. We'd love to help. Jeff, welcome into the program. How are you today? Good, Tony. How are you doing? Good. Good to see you again. Hey, the, the contract for John Harbaugh seems to be holding up a lot of things with the Ravens. They've been really quiet lately. You know, I, I know we've talked off the air via text that usually by this time there's been either a head coach addressing the end of the season or the owner or some combination thereof. What's going on right now from what you understand with John Harbaugh contract? Yeah, the, you know, the, the surprise is not that Bashadi hasn't talked. His State of the Ravens address is usually, you know, a couple weeks later or even last year was more a little more than a month. But John Harbaugh usually talks within the first couple of days. And here we are, you know, a week and a half heading to about two weeks since the season ended. And we haven't heard uh, boo from John Harbaugh. And, um, you know, I, I everything I've led to believe it's, look, they didn't think the contract was far away. They thought it was going to get done. And why have him talk a day or two after the season than then have another press conference a couple days later for his contract. Uh, however, I guess his contract wasn't as imminent a, a, as we all thought. Um, so it's taken a little while to get that done, and they'd prefer to, you know, wait on that. So the 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 Harbaugh press conference isn't. I don't want hijacked might not be the right word, but so the Harbaugh press conference isn't dominated by contract questions. They'd like to have that kind of in front of them going forward, but. You know, the silence has certainly led to plenty of speculation on what's going on there. Yeah, we've heard the speculation, which I know to be totally bogus, about John and Eric not getting along. But I, I think more meaningfully, probably what's bogging things down, in my opinion, are a couple of things. One, you've got that outlier contract with John Gruden, 10 years, $100 million. That suddenly becomes a benchmark, I'm sure, for agents that represent head coaches. And then there's this other thing that's sort of creeping up with new contracts with some of the coaches that have been signed by some teams, that having to do with the potential work stoppage in 2021. Yeah, and that seems to be – it's, it's, that's been very interesting in how they're structuring co contracts with all the new coaches – um, you know, you know, around that or with that in mind is, is probably fair. And, you know, I always thought, uh, Tony, with John, money, I'm not saying money doesn't matter. That's ridiculous. But I think the deciding factor was always going to be length. And if you're the Ravens and if you're Bashadi and you needed to walk away from Billick's contract, 
what was that one year into a four or five year agreement yes. and he had to eat the rest of that money. I think it was always going to be, the question was always going to be how much are we going to extend him? And you're sitting there as John Harbaugh, Super Bowl winning coach, one of the most highly thought of coaches in the league. And you're seeing these first year head coaches like LaFleur and, you know, kitchens and some of these guys that nobody knows if they could coach getting four year deals uh, you're you're not going to accept less than four or five years, I wouldn't think. And then you go back to the Ravens, and how much are they comfortable giving? Are you comfortable giving a coach heading into his, you, you know, nearly a dozen years now? Are you comfortable giving him a five-year extension? Eh, that's where it gets dicey. And, and I'm not positive, Tony. Both sides have been very quiet. I'll give them that. Uh, they have not made this an issue. They're going about it the right way, trying to hammer out this deal without it going to the media. Uh, but I would have to imagine duration of the contract all along was going to be the biggest issue. I think the Ravens understand they were going to have to make John Harbaugh. He's going to have to be in that realm of among the highest paid coaches in the league. But how many years did they give him? I, th I think that's a big question here. Speaking of contract extensions, there's C.J. Mosley, now a free agent, and the Ravens are supposedly in discussions with him to get him tied up before he hits the free agent market. But, Jeff, I've got to ask you, if you're an agent representing C.J. Mosley, why get a deal done now when there are no games to be played? There's no risk of injury. Why not just see what the market bears? Yeah, and that's the whole thing. Um, you know, the closer you get to free agency, the more you wonder what's the point, you know. The only thing I could think of on there is Mosley's been very clear. He doesn't want to go anywhere. And he's a different kind of guy. C.J. Mosley, I don't think anybody knows him really well. Um, he's a really nice guy. Uh, I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying calling him mercurial or anything. But he kind of marches to the beat of his own drum. And he said very clearly he doesn't want to go anywhere. He's told teammates that. He's told the media that. I think in an interview with Ravens.com, he said he's 100% confident he'll be back next year. So he's not talking like a guy who's any interest in the free agent market, what that has to offer. I think legacy means a lot to him and staying at the same place would. Um, so, you know, he's a guy that if he tells Jimmy Sexton, his agent, look, I want to stay in Baltimore, get this worked out, I, I think it can get done. But, you know somebody's going to give him Luke Keekly money. Someone's going to be willing to pay him 12, 13 million a year. Uh, there's just way too much money out there on the open market. So uh, if I'm his agent, I'm trying to encourage him. Hey, let's wait a little bit. Let's wait a, you know, another month or so, but Hey, you never know. CJ may say, this is where I want to be. Get the deal done. I have no interest in being wined and dined or hearing all this stuff. I'm fine with making, you know, being a top of making what I want to make, but I don't need to need all the other things. I don't need teams, you know, entertaining me and telling me how great I am and, and flashing all these big figures at me. Uh, it would not surprise me if he's the type of guy that just says, look, this is where I want to be. Get it done. I don't need all the other stuff. You mentioned, Jeff, that there's a lot of money, a lot of cap money in the marketplace, and some teams really flush with cap space that have that need, and that could really set the number for C.J. Mosley. And if that happens, what do you think the price point is for the Ravens when they say, you know what, we're done, this is too much for us? That's a great question. Um, and a, a, another element to that, Tony, is Keekley's contract is over three years old now. 
So if you're Jimmy Sexton, Great you're point. saying, look, I don't even want this to be the benchmark. That was three years ago. The cap's moved up every year since. We're not in the same realm as we were then. This is a different time of year. You know, just like the quarterback con- contracts, it's all about timing. You know, all these guys, Matt Ryan was the highest paid guy for a while, and Matthew Stafford, and, and the timing of the contract stipulated that, not necessarily that they were the best quarterback, Joe Flacco, obviously. So I would be saying the same thing if uh, I'm Jimmy Sexton, but I don't think you can go there if you're the Ravens. That, that's just too much. Um, for him, I, I think he's a very important player. I think you're probably you 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 know you're probably going to have to get over ten um, million per on him, um, and I think that's where it's probably going to have to start. I, I think there's maybe four linebackers now. Tony making about ten million per be below Keekley. That is, he's you know a little bit higher than the ten million. So I think it's – I would be surprised if it start if, if you, you could get him anything less than that. But uh, you start getting up to 12, 13 million a year and it's like, wait a second. That, that, that to me – because I've been a C.J. Mosley apologist. Me and you have talked about this. I think he's a lot better player than people – many people in Baltimore do. However, there, there are flaws there. L- let's be honest. So uh, you have to look at all that stuff and, and I'd be uncomfortable once we start getting up into that we're speaking with Jeff Zrebeck from The Athletic. Jeff, do you think that C.J. Mosley and Eric Weddle are sort of like in an either-or situation? In other words, the Ravens are losing a lot of leadership on the field if they lose both of those guys. So if Mosley signed, do you think that does Eric Weddle in? And if Mosley isn't signed, does that pave the way for Eric Weddle to come back? I think that's a really interesting question. The Ravens usually don't do business like that, I don't think necessarily, but you'd be foolish not to consider what's that going to do for the leadership of their defense if they lose both those guys, not to mention 55 on the outside, who is not a signal caller type, but he is the emotional leader, and he's one of the guys that directs film sessions and tells guys what to look out for. Um, I do think it would be tough for them to lose both. However, I think they're looking at him individually. I think they've made it clear to Mosley now, and I wondered why they hadn't done it months ago. Uh, but it sounds like in the last month or so, they re-engaged uh, you know, Mosley a little bit. And it seems like Weddle, they have a decision to make, um, but they haven't closed the door yet on him. I would be surprised if he's back at his current number. Um, so I think they're treating them individually but if it seems like they can't resign Mosley, um, I think they will have to get a little more serious about trying to keep Weddle around because I think we all remember week two in Cincinnati when Mosley went out, they put the headset in uh, Patrick Owasu's uh, helmet, and that was a disaster. And look, Owasu has grown so much as a player. He played his butt off, and he's a good player. But it's different when you're in that middle linebacker position and you're calling the plays and relaying your defense. Uh, so they don't have another guy to do that. I don't want to hear how Kenny Young's ready for that. So I don't. I think it would be very tough, Tony, to uh, lose both of those guys this offseason. And I, and I do think it's a good point you make that, you know, maybe an indirectly that they could have an impact on each other. Ultimately, if I'm a betting man, I'm saying both are back. But I don't feel strongly about that. Staying with the defense, Jeff, 
What's the buzz or lack thereof with players that the Ravens drafted a couple of years ago that you would think by now they'd be making their mark on the field, namely Tyus Bowser and uh, Timmy Williams? Two different cases in that Bowser uh, works hard. They don't have a problem with Tyus Bowser's practice habits. Every time you see Tyus Bowser, he's doing something. He's stretching. He's working out. He's in the corner talking to a coach. He seems to go about it the right way. The guy's got the body of an Adonis. I mean, he is ripped in every way, shape, or form. An impressive, impressive specimen. And then you get him in the game and the lights go on and I just don't I, you just don't see it. And we've seen that with players in the past where it seems not to translate when the lights go on. And, and there seems to be a hesitancy there and a thinking too much there. And for whatever reason, Tyrus, Tyus Bowser's work habits and his physical clear physical gifts have not translated the football field. And that's a concern. He he. He did let them down the last couple weeks of the season from missing special team stack tackles. Every time he's in the game against the Chargers, they ran right at him, and he struggled to set the edge. That's a concern. Can the light go on? Could he show improvement? Sure. I'm not ready to say he's a complete bust, but it's not. that's not a good situation right now. As you said, if one of those guys had panned out, we're not even talking about Darius Smith, and we may not even be talking about Terrell Suggs. They'd be willing to let those guys go, and you know, you go with you know Bowser and uh, Judon as the edge, and then you draft the guy. But since neither of them have panned out, and Tim Williams is the exact opposite, Tim Williams' problem is um, – just the focus and the professionalism, getting himself ready to play, practice, nah, practice habits, not always having attention to detail. Uh, after his first injury this year, his high ankle sprain, he lost a ton of weight. And he's had a hard time maintaining his playing weight. And I'm, I, maybe the, maybe there's something wrong with him. I don't want to cast blame and that's being unprofessional or anything. But it's little things like that and focus and attention to detail that has kept him from being able to play every week. And he's been banged up. He's had quite a few injuries and illnesses in two years that have kind of impeded his progress. Uh, it's another big offseason for him. I, I think, Tony, you look at it. Neither of those guys is a guarantee to be on the opening season roster next year. I think both those guys are going to need to go to camp and earn a job. Yeah, that would be a major disappointment if either one of them is not yeah. part of the 2019 roster. Let's shift sides of the ball and, and look at the offense. The Ravens have made a statement that they're going to retool the offense to fit the skill sets of Lamar Jackson. Do you think there's some danger in that? Well, I do because – I. Anybody now will tell you that they know exactly what Jackson's going to be. I, I just don't know how you can say that. Uh, I think you feel better about Lamar Jackson if you're the Ravens after seeing how he handled all this his rookie year. He got a lot better. Anybody watch him in those first in training camp and early in the preseason of what he was, he improved a lot. And the biggest thing about him is just the competitive spirit and the winning spirit. The kid wants to be great. He wants to be, 
everything to Baltimore, and, and he is a magnetic personality. There's so much good there, Tony, um, but he's got a lot to learn as a football player. And, you know, there's that school of thought that you really, there's only so much you can teach in terms of accuracy and all that. And that's always going to be an issue for him. Uh, now, can he improve on it? Yes. If he improves on it a decent bit with everything else he has, they're in good shape. Uh, I don't, arm strength is not, you know, it, it's not going to be a, you know, he it's something he can work on too. Um, but I don't think it's going to be the big reason if he doesn't make it as a, as a quarterback. I think it's going to be more uh, arm strength, uh, more accuracy, not arm strength. Um, but the danger of it is, you know, maybe he's not the long-term answer as a quarterback and you're putting a lot of eggs in that basket here going forward. Um, but I think you, I, I think that's where you are. I think you owe it to yourself as an organization. You picked him in the first round. He won a lot of games for you this year uh, in some tough spots. And I think he deserves the opportunity to improve and to develop and they deserve the opportunity to develop him. But, you know, there, that's going to take all hands on deck. And, and um, the big question, and it's one I'm sure Eric DaCosta is already working on, how do you, everyone's saying it, we've said it, you've said it, you know, fitting the offense around Jackson's skill set, how do you do that? Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean big and rangy receivers, receivers that work between the numbers? Uh, does that mean a certain kind of running back, not a deliberate running back, more of a north-south guy um you know what sort of offensive lineman does that mean so th that's all big questions that eric's gonna have to answer and we're gonna be watching here uh but i don't think anybody who can say for sure now that after watching lamar jackson for half season you know they know the kid's gonna be a star i just don't know how you can do that he has a lot of growing to do uh this off this off season and and this training camp and going forward we're speaking with jeff Zerebeck from the athletic jeff staying with the offense they made a big change. They relieved, well, they offered Marty Morningweg another job within the organization. I'm kind of glad that he didn't take it because not so much as, a, as an indictment against Marty, but I just think that that creates an unsettling atmosphere when a guy takes over for you and you're still part of the program. It just, I, I think it, it has the potential to unwind versus being a benefit. So what, what are your thoughts on just replacing Marty with Greg Roman and how that might benefit the Ravens? Yeah, I agree with you. I, that's never a good situation where the guy that got demoted is still on staff. Um, maybe there's a couple people there that prefer Marty over uh, Roman. I'm not saying that's the case, but it always could be. And, uh, you know, where do they go going forward? Are they all aboard? So there was no need for that. No need for Marty to be around answering questions and uh, probably the best part thing for both sides. Um, I, it makes sense. Um, what the Ravens did. And, you know, I think the biggest thing, I think the biggest question, and I'm not sure we'll ever get a straight answer on this, would the Ravens have made the move if multiple teams did not turn in slips to interview Greg Roman for their offensive coordinator? Would the Ravens have made a change of Marty Morningweg if Greg Roman was going to be outside the organization or was going to be back in the same position? How much did that force the change. Um, I think it had a lot to do with it. That certainly was the timing. Um, I did not hear much about a change in Marty Morningweg, although that's, you know, John Harbaugh keeps that stuff low key. Um, so 
I, I think the move that, that John's hands was forced in a little ways. And I think what the Ravens do well with Jackson was run the ball and Greg Roman's creative and versatile run schemes, along with his history with a Colin Kaepernick and, and a quarterback like that who can run and throw the ball a little bit and him developing Kaepernick and an offense around him. I think that kind of made him the more natural fit. And I just think in general, Tony, there's been a lot of confidence lost in Marty Morningweg. Again, I don't think people come out saying it, but there was not a good sentiment in the locker room after the Chargers loss. I, I think I, I think people felt like the lack of adjustments were obvious, and that falls on the whole coaching staff, Roman included. But Marty's the guy. He's calling the plays, the feel for that game, the play call, and the lack of adjustments. It was going to be tough for Marty to come back from that. And, and he, you know, this wasn't a one-year run, a half-a-season run for Marty. He got a lot longer than anybody thought. I mean, his job was no question. Uh, in question almost the first season he was there after he took over from Tressman, and, and he stayed on a couple off-seasons where I don't think we expected him to. So I think it was probably time to go in another direction, and Roman's history and ability to design the run game and implement an offense around Jackson uh, probably made him the better fit at that point. Another change on the Ravens coaching staff, Bobby Engram moves from a wide receivers coach where he played as a professional to a tight ends coach. What do you make of that? I'm wondering if that was just more to find kind of a spot for Ingram, a, a well-liked guy who Harbaugh really likes, brought out from the college ranks. Um, there's also the whole, you know, position coaches in a way, um, they're when their tight ends are being coached on blocking and stuff, I'd imagine their O-line coach works a lot with their tight ends too. And, and Greg Roman designs all the run game and the run blocking, so he's going to still be working with the tight ends. So maybe Bobby more focuses on working with Hayden Hurst and, and James uh, Mark Andrews, excuse me, on their route running and, and getting off and getting off uh, press and all that kind of stuff. And, and he could fit in there. But I think at the wide receiver coach – you know, lately Ingram had kind of been a polarizing guy because the Ravens have not really developed young receivers. Um, I, I mean, the other side of that is who have they really drafted early in rounds that, uh, you know, had all these tools to develop. I'm, I'm still not buying Perryman as the example. I just think he needed to change the scenery and he needed to get out of Baltimore and it wouldn't have mattered here at, at that point. But um, I think it makes sense to kind of bring in a receiver coach that, that Roman probably knows, probably familiar with. I mean, it's going to be a real group. What Roman's biggest challenge is going to be marrying pairing the passing game with the run game. And it was something I'm, you know, something I'm actually writing a little bit on today. I mean, Roman's had one of the worst passing games in the league everywhere he's been, and he's had one of the best running games. Ravens aren't going to have a top 10 running and passing game. Let's be honest here. But if they can have a if they can have a top five running game and a passing game in the teens or maybe even twentieth or twenty first, you can win with that recipe. And and so it, he's going to have to marry uh, those elements all together and, and with the passing game with the run game. And uh, it kind of makes sense to get a wide receiver coach that he's he's comfortable with. I'm not saying Ingram wasn't that guy, but um, I, I'm sure there was trying you know. Harbaugh put it to me. He wanted to reorganize the coaching staff a little, uh, get everybody to their strengths, 
and, and do some different things as they tried to build this offense the way he saw it. So apparently he thought they're a better fit with another receiver coach coming in. And it'll be interesting who that guy is. I haven't even heard any speculation, but there's so many moving pieces right now among the various coaching staffs. So many coaches looking for work. So I'm sort of John has a lot to sort out. 2018, for a lot of, in a lot of ways, Jeff, is an end of an era. Ozzie Newsome, no longer the general manager. Joe Flacco will not be the Ravens quarterback in 2019. When you look back at Joe's career, how will you remember him most? You know, just selfishly, Tony, and I've said this to you, just the accountability, the, um, you know, just how he became, um, you know, one of the go-to guys in the locker room, a guy that everyone kind of, lamented for being boring Joe he doesn't say anything just to how he became the stand-up guy through wins and losses how he developed relationships with the media was never a guy you were going to get in the offseason on the phone but he was always a guy that if you went to him at his locker he'd make time for you you know and always a guy that wasn't held back by the one press conference per week rule that most quarterbacks do and that's just selfishly I, I he says he says uh, you know, accountable and, and honest as any athlete I've covered, I think. And but I think in Baltimore, what they, you just have to remember for the stability, the toughness, the what he did. I think as any athlete, you want the guys that rise to the occasion in the season's biggest moments. And, and I think Flacco made a career on that. And in so many ways, Tony, he's so Baltimore in a lot of ways. I know he he's really a Jersey is. guy. and He said it. He's like, people around here are kind of like the people I grew up with. But he's so Baltimore in a lot of ways. It's, there's, you know, He doesn't care what other people say about it. People can talk about the all's flaws like people do about Baltimore. But he's proud of who he is. He's not changing, and he's he's going to give you a chance every week. And he just he just became so much kind of like you know I'm not trying to write a poem here, but he became so much like a city uh, that he winded up playing for for over a decade. And and it's just how everyone embraced him, and and he sort of. He gave the Ravens everything, and, and he stabilized the position that had been such an issue for so long. Um, he's a guy that, as popular as he was in his career, Tony, I think he's going to be even more popular after he's gone when he comes back to Baltimore. I mean, he's just going to be beloved for bringing a Super Bowl back, but he's going to be beloved for the whole period, for how he handled himself in the end, for how he grew up as a man and a player in Baltimore, and for how he you know, obviously delivered the Super Bowl and so many other wins. Uh, just a great dude. Uh, just as regular as a guy as you can talk to and meet. Um, and obviously had his flaws as a quarterback, but he was a damn good quarterback too for a long time for an organization that really lacked that stability and, and uh, effort, not effort, but the stability and production at the position. Very, very well said, Jeff. Where do you think Joe ends up? Jacksonville, to me, has always made the most sense, but, you know, that was... You know, there's talk now they just hired DeFilippo as their offensive coordinator. Um, and there's talk that he, you know, he started with the Eagles. He was with the Eagles two years ago. Nick Folds, you know, has talked that maybe he's they're going to target Foles. Um, Denver, are they still interested? Or is Keenum their guy? I don't know, Tony. I, I guess if I had to say... I'd say one of the Florida teams, either Jacksonville or Miami, assuming Miami moves on from Tannehill, 
Um, but I, I'm, I know the Ravens are saying it, but I, I still am really – I'm not convinced that there's going to be a major market for him. And I would not be shocked if they still have to release him rather than trade him. Um, I know, you, you know your guy, Brian McFarlane, I think has been on that, uh, hitting that hard too. And I, and I kind of agree with Brian. Um, all it takes is one. It wouldn't surprise me if they're able to recoup a mid-round pick for him. But there's just not a lot of teams right now. A team like the Giants looks like they're probably willing to stay with Eli and then draft one early and have Eli be the one-year stopgap guy. Um, a couple other teams, you know, there's just not a lot of teams. You don't know what Alex Smith's health is in Washington, but just not a lot of teams in the mood in the market for a one-year stopgap starter where they'll they'll probably trade you much for him. And then the whole issue is everyone knows the Ravens are moving on from him. So what are you going to give the Ravens? So um, if the Ravens get a third-round pick. For Joe Flacco, I think they should be absolutely thrilled. I, I do. But if I was to say where he ends up, I guess I would stick with either Jaguars or maybe the Dolphins. Okay. Last question for you, Jeff. Ozzie Newsome, he's still going to be within the organization. How do you see his – what's his role going to be with Eric DaCosta taking over as GM? Yeah, you know, my understanding was he's – you know, his contract's not just a one-year thing either. Like, he's there. He's going to be there for going forward. Um, so I, I think he's just going to be, um, a trusted voice in the front office. I'll be interested to see his title. Well, what do they make his title? Is he a assistant to the general manager? Is he assistant to the owner? See, you know, I don't know, but I think he's going to have a say. I, I, I think they'll, they'll put him on different scouting trips or they'll have him watch different players in the draft. I think they'll a whole Eric will consult with him regularly. I think Steve will consult with him regularly. I think John Harbaugh will consult with him regularly. Um, and I think they're able to do this because of Ozzy's, you know, how selfless he is and, right. and humble and uh, how he's close with Eric DaCosta. He's not looking to steal Eric DaCosta's thunder. This is Eric DaCosta's team now. Eric deserves the opportunity going forward to sit in that big chair and make the final calls. Uh, but I think Ozzy wants to be there for him. I think he wants to provide advice. I think Eric... Um, is obviously talented and, and is smart and is going to seek Ozzy's advice. It would be stupid not to when you have that resource, a former player, Hall of Fame player and executive really in there. So I just think they're going to, you know, he's going to be a confidant to a lot of people in there. He's going to help out. I wouldn't even be surprised if they haven't worked with some of the tight ends in practice. I, I mean, I'm not <laughs> saying he's going to get down in a, you know, a stance and show him how to block, but it wouldn't surprise me it, if he watches tape with some of the tight ends and they do different things, uh, I just think Ozzy just loves being around the game. And, and I, I think they want his voice in that front office. And I think he's a real settling uh, personality. I, I think his, his personality is a great one to have still around um, kind of keeping things in perspective and making sure everybody, all the top decision makers are considering the various different factors. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know. I'll be interested to hear his title, but I think his, his reach, I think he will be wide. His, his role will be wide reaching. I think they'll use him in a bunch of different areas. Very interesting. Jeff Zarebeck, how can people find you on the web? Well, I'm at the, at the athletic.com. Um, you know, we're uh, we're doing a lot, and and it'll be interesting. I won't I won't be worried about you know blogging once a day like kind of I was at my old spot. Uh, I'll be able to work on some good stories. And Tony, you said it. I mean, there's going to be some fascinating stuff uh, 
coming up with the Ravens. And no we question. mentioned Ed Reed. I mean, we got Ed Reed going to the Hall of Fame. So it's going to be a great, busy offseason. And uh, at the Athletic Baltimore, uh, we'll be covering it all and uh, hopefully writing some really good stories. We'll be looking forward to those stories, Jeff. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Tony. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Mike Popovic from 105.7 The Fan. Don't go away. Like 33rd Street was to Colt fans, Russell Street will become legendary for future generations of Raven fans. Not only is Russell Street the team's address on Sunday, it's now home to the website voted Baltimore's best five years in a row. You've known them as Ravens247.com for years, and now you'll love them as RussellStreetReport.com for many more. There's nothing else like it for Baltimore football fans. Trust me, RussellStreetReport.com. Baltimore's home for football 24-7. Welcome back to the Russell Street Report. I'm Tony Lombardi. Special thanks again to Jeff Zarebeck for that great segment before. Joining us now on the Mobile One Hotline, he's live from the Delmarva Peninsula where they had an earthquake last night off the coast, is Mike Popovic from 105.7 The Fan and WGMD. Mike, welcome into the program. Hey, thanks so much, Tony. I appreciate it. You got to love technology. I've never actually Skyped via video before. This is really cool. This is cool. Except that fuzzy microphone in front of your face. I, don't <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's my program director's uh, idea of a joke. So it, uh, yeah, it looks like a, a fuzzy dog, actually. A fuzzy dog hair on top of the microphone. I hope it doesn't it. have <laughs> fleas. Or I hope you don't have to clean your teeth when you're finished. <laughs> no, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the Ravens, Mike. I know you are very passionate about this. It comes down to the Ravens' offense. Offensive coordinator change. Marty Morningwig is out. Greg Roman is in. Your thoughts on that? Well, from the running perspective, I would have to agree that Greg Roman was uh, the best hire there to promote him. Uh, Marty, as we know, is very pass-happy. But that all said, I've got serious reservations about Greg Roman's uh, passing game part of his offense and how that's going to go because as we know that this is not an offense that's going to be sustainable with running Jackson 15, 17 times a game over the next several years. It's just not going to work. We all know that Lamar Jackson has to get better as a pocket passer and I just wonder in the whole scheme of things was this the right move to make? Now, I know that Rome is, is highly regarded and his players have spoken highly of him. I know, uh, you know Stanley's talked about him, but even Joe Stanley, the all-pro left tackle with San Francisco where he used to coach, has talked highly about him as well. So, you know, from the running game perspective, no, I, I feel very good about that. But his passing offenses, Tony, have never been anything dynamic. And on top of that, again, this is going to be a big growth year for Lamar Jackson. So I look at this one of two ways. Either you know Roman is going to help in that development, or maybe more so James Urban. But if those guys don't make strides in the passing game area, then you know all of this is kind of going to be for naught, and it won't matter as much that, that he got elevated, in my opinion. You are Eric, Eric DaCosta. What do you do about the Ravens' offense if you have you know all those tools available to him this coming off season? Where do you start with making this an offense that's really adaptable and a good fit for Lamar Jackson? Well, and see, that's the other thing, Tony, is do you invest resources in something that may not be around in two to three years? And yeah, that's there, my there, concern. There's a, there's a risk there for sure. There's a big risk. Now, 
to your point, though, let's assume, though, that, hey, we're all in on Lamar and we believe that this is going to be successful for, say, four years. I think it does start, though, with the offensive line, and we saw that they had issues there against L.A. in that second meeting. Now, some of that had to do with the way L.A. schemed, but there's no doubt that they still need to build on the offensive line. We know Marshall Yonda doesn't have many more years left, so you at least have to get a guard there. You know, I think James Hurst was playing hurt, and he may be the answer for the next couple years at left guard, but I don't think going out and getting a couple of interior guys hurts, including center there. So I think guard center, I think they really have to start there first. And then they probably this year, Tony, can get away without having to draft a dynamic running back if, for say, uh, there's a really good free safety there, and obviously we know they need to address that. But I think in maybe not this year, but in certainly 2020, they're going to need to go out and get uh, a dynamic running back for them. They have not had that in a while. And then uh, wide receiver as well. But if we're talking priorities here, Lamar Jackson, we're talking more of a run game, then you got to start offensive line and running back, even though certainly we could use some wide receivers. But I'd have to put that third on the pecking list. If you're looking at wide receivers, what type of wide receiver do you think is the best style or fit for Lamar's skill set? Well, I think it's going to be a guy that is physical, that uh, first and foremost can block downfield uh, just as well as he can run routes, quite honestly, and have pretty good hands. If we're assuming, and I know Lamar's got a good arm, but if we're assuming that we're going to kind of baby feed him uh, the passing game, you're going to want guys that can work underneath, and I think you're going to see a lot more of those type routes. And in fact, if anything, you could argue Marty Morenweg's West Coast offense probably might fit in terms of his passing game if we're kind of kind of start at ground uh, zero with Lamar and try to build him up. Uh, but I think that's the kind of receiver you're going to need, uh, an Anquan Bolden type, physical and can run underneath routes. Uh, to, uh, to help him out because he's not going to be going deep a whole lot. We're speaking with Mike Popovic from 105.7 The Fan and also from WGMD on Delmarva's Peninsula. Mike, before the break, we were talking to Jeff Zarebeck, and he brought up some interesting points about C.J. Mosley. He said he wasn't really a mercurial guy, but he was a player who really, really wants to stay in Baltimore. And it sounds like he's amenable to a hometown discount. And then I asked Jeff, you know, if you're this close to free agency, why not try just to see what you're worth? In your mind, what is C.J. Mosley worth to the Ravens? And then I'll, I'll put a part two to that question. You and I have always had the opportunity to speak with Steve Bishotti down there at the Ravens rap, and Steve often brings up the 80-20 rule. If you can get 80% of the production for 20% of the price, you got to go that way. Do you see perhaps that situation developing in Baltimore when it comes to middle linebacker? I potentially do. Certainly, I think the Ravens, though, speak very highly of C.J. Mosley. I know that the Ravens have a lot of cap space. I mean, there are a lot of factors here, as you know. One of those factors is cap room. A second factor, though, as well is is what kind of linebackers are there for you in the draft. Can you replace him in the draft and right and get that kind of value uh, you know, for Mosley there without breaking the bank, knowing that you've got other areas that you want to cover as well. And look, you may have cap space this coming season. It doesn't mean you have to spend it all. You may want to save some for the following year as well, uh, as you know. If he's willing to accept a hometown discount, I think certainly that helps his value with the team quite a bit. But I'm not in love with C.J. Mosley. I think he's... He's solid. He's maybe 
one of the better inside linebackers, yes, in the league, but that doesn't necessarily mean, though, that for the price and for the Ravens, that that's the best fit there. I do have my issues with him. I see a guy that gets caught up in traffic a lot, that doesn't get off blocks. I don't see a guy that really uh, can uh, go and stick guys in the hole uh, the way Ray Lewis used to do, for instance. Um, you know, oftentimes he's late to the ball there. Um, he could blitz well. I know that he knows the defense well. Um, he's not a great guy in pass coverage. So you kind of wonder, like, why Why is there all this love for C.J. Mosley? Um, you know, maybe I'm being a little too tough on him, uh, but I, I think it's a situation where right now I would guess that the Ravens, if they get a home down discount, knowing how they feel about him, they're probably more inclined to keep him. If it were me, though, I wouldn't break the bank. I keep my options open and uh, and build at that inside linebacker position, which they have to do anyway, Tony, as far as I'm concerned. They got uh, Kenny Young. They've got Owasu there, uh, but they could add another piece or two. Yeah, if I'm hearing you right, Mike, it sounds like you're saying that C.J. is an important part of the defense, but let's not overvalue the position. The position in today's modern NFL isn't quite as important as, let's say, edge rushers, rushers and guys on the back end. Well, I would absolutely agree with that 110%, and you have to be very careful about how much you're going to pay that specific position there when you might be able to go out and get uh, you know, a guy that's an up-and-comer anyway. And, again, you've got Kenny Young there, who uh, I think very highly of and uh, could be the guy to fill that spot in years to come. Now, speaking of edge rushers, we've got one that's slated that who could come back in 2019. He's a free agent right now, but if he comes back, he turns 37 years old in October. Obviously, I'm talking about Terrell Suggs. Now, Terrell really has fallen off later in the season, each of the last two, perhaps three seasons, Mike, but he still sets that edge as good as anybody in the league, and I don't know of another outside linebacker that can read the bubble screen as well as he does, but do you see him coming back in 2019 with the Ravens? I, I do, um, but I, I think certainly you have to look at it from the perspective of, and I mean this in a positive way, but does keeping him on the team hurt the team in other areas where they could use that roster spot? But I tell you, Tony, I, certainly at the end of the day, it's a, it's a results-driven league, but there is something to be said for having a guy there uh, that can take control of the locker room, that can be a leader, that can mentor guys, and also give a certain amount of production there. Again, I think it all comes down to a certain amount with price, but I more so than, than a C.J. Mosley, Terrell Suggs is a tie to the past, and I'm talking about pre-2008. You know, He played on the number one defense the last time the Ravens had the number one defense in 2006. So I hear you about the production dropping off, and I, and I think that's a fair point that does have to be looked at. Uh, but I think the Ravens very much would like to have him back. I don't see him b beyond beyond 2019, though, to put it this way, that this would be the swan song. Uh, but I very well could see that. But you have to weigh it against, okay, he's taking the roster spot of what other area. But was Zadarius Smith likely, Tony, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to possibly get away in free agency there? Uh, that might open up a spot. And Tim Williams hasn't exactly... Uh, you know, come in and uh, take in a starter spot or even in a rotational spot for the most part. So you take a look at that. That's two spots there that, you know, no one's bumped Terrell out uh, in the last couple of years anyway. Yeah, in the past, you would have a guy like a Tim Williams or a Tyus Bowser who would be taking over the role for a Zadarius Smith. But those guys haven't stepped up at all. And you have to wonder if if those two guys aren't getting it done. Suggs is gone and Smith is gone, where is the pass rush going to come from? And that's where some of that well, money right. could be used that they might otherwise give to C.J. Mosley. 
Yeah, no, and, and that's absolutely right. And no doubt that that position is valued a lot more than inside linebacker because getting after the quarterback is something that uh, you know, is extremely valuable in the NFL. And I was actually shocked, Tony, as much as the Ravens blitzed, I was shocked to see where they were numbers-wise. I believe sack-wise, they were more middle of the pack when I kind of thought they might be a top 10 uh, a top ten defense and sacks when all was said and done, but that's not how it turned out. Yeah, they did pressure the quarterback. I'd be interested to see what the pressure numbers look like, but they did disrupt the passer right. a lot without taking him down. But what you're right, Mike, when you look at the sacks and then you factor in the, that the Ravens had 11 sacks against the Tennessee Titans in one game, that's, that's right. a big number there. Yeah, and that is the big problem for the Ravens is is that, and I know generally speaking, it, it can be at times feast or famine when it comes to sacks and pressures sometimes are just as important, but the Ravens need to get steadier there, and they have invested draft picks, as you mentioned, and Williams and Bowser, those guys haven't really turned out yet. You'll wonder, are those guys going to turn out at all? And uh, in the meantime, you know, could you maybe use a bridge to the future for one more year with Suggs, given his uh, experience, uh, given the fact that at times he's productive and the fact that he's a great leader? We're speaking with Mike Popovic from 105.7 The Fan, also from WGMD on Delmarva's Peninsula. Mike, I asked Jeff Zareed back before the break about Joe Flacco and how he will be remembered in Baltimore. From your perspective, and, and Jeff gave an interesting perspective because he's there every day in the building and he has a relationship with Joe. But from your perspective, what's the legacy of Joe Flacco going to look like for you? Well, the first, the first thing that comes to mind is durability. And in a lot of ways, while certainly we're not saying that he's Johnny Unitas, a lot of people felt a kinship to Joe Flacco like Johnny Unitas, just kind of a, a no-nonsense guy that didn't show necessarily a lot of emotion that led more by example on the field uh, that was very cool and calm, uh, but was somebody you could count on week in and week out, durability, and we saw that. And he also had a lot of success uh, for the majority of his career, the last couple of years, for a number of factors, uh, you know, things haven't quite been the same. Uh, but uh, I'd say durability. I'd also say, uh, you know, a guy that uh, was Joe Cool. I mean, uh, calm under pressure and a guy that you did feel like in the most critical of times in the toughest of environments, a guy that, yeah, could come through. He might be uh, a carousel ride during the game or a roller coaster ride during the game, so high highs and low lows. But I tell you what, in some of the most important times uh, at Pittsburgh, at New England, at Kansas City, this guy came through and, and made plays. And, uh, you know, all in all, um, you know, hey, the most successful Ravens quarterback, and you got to give him a lot, of, a lot of love for it and a lot of appreciation. Yeah, I did a piece, a thank you Joe piece last week. And, and during that piece, you know, when you look at his career, for me, you know, I was critical of him a lot in the last four and five years because I think he earned that criticism. It doesn't mean I didn't like him as a quarterback or I didn't think he was accountable and durable and all the things you said. But when I take a step back and I look at 11 years, Mike, I'm glad he came around because we had 10 playoff wins, seven playoff appearances, three AFC championship appearances, and one Super Bowl. And if Lamar Jackson can even approach that, he was a successful draft pick. Yeah. No, I mean, look, you're absolutely right, Tony. And you have to look at the big picture of things. And look, we, we've certainly been more, I think, than honest about Joe and some of the negative aspects uh, to his game or what he doesn't necessarily bring to his game. But at the same time, you take a look at the fact in the last couple of years, you know, between injuries, between a lot of changeovers, a coach, uh, between the fact that they know who he was after six, seven years, most certainly. And did they provide him with the kind of 
I don't want to say stability, but but the kind of building blocks around him to allow him to thrive. And I'm not sure that they did that after knowing who he was. And yet they may have tried to change that or were unsuccessful, at least in surrounding him uh, with the kind of players he needed to succeed. Um, you take a look at Gary Kubiak coming in and the job that he did with Joe in the offense that year. And I think that speaks uh, that speaks volumes of, boy, when you have a really good offensive coach, look what he was able to accomplish. And if it wasn't for a really banged up secondary and some questionable uh, refereeing, uh, they should have won another game in New England in early 2015. Yeah, woulda, shoulda, coulda, coulda won in 2011, shoulda gone to the Super Bowl, but all in all, I think it was a great era for Joe Flacco in Baltimore. Mike, I want to wrap up with a couple of quick questions for you. Your biggest surprise for the Ravens in 2019? Well, it's got to be Lamar Jackson and the fact that this offense for six, seven, eight consecutive weeks had the success it did. Yes, it took the NFL by surprise, but you would have thought towards the end that we did see it against L.A., but they faced us a second time. You would have thought that at some point teams would have been able to catch up to that and stop that to a certain extent or minimize it, and they were unable to do it. And the fact that in a passing league uh, we saw a college offense, a, a shotgun triple option, be successful the way it was, uh, was unbelievable to me. The biggest disappointment in 2018? I think it's the fact that they weren't able to build on the early three and one success that they had. I mean, it, look, Joe came out ablaze. He was playing some of his best football the first four weeks of the season. Things collapsed on him, but a big part of that had to do with uh, a running game that he never really had. Alex Collins with 68 yards was the, was the leading rusher uh, during the nine weeks that he played. That's it. He never had a hundred yard or even 90 yard rusher for that matter. Uh, and then the defense uh, that, that got beat up against Carolina and Pittsburgh and then blew the lead at home to New Orleans, uh, the fact they weren't able to build on three and one and uh, the fact that, uh, you know, they, they ended up making a switch and I know it worked out. Uh, but I think in some ways that's kind of a failure of uh, the fact that uh, they they went to the bye looking really bad. Team MVP in 2018, Mike. Well, I think it's easy to say Lamar Jackson there. Yeah, I would where agree. Would we be you know, without him. I mean, I think it's tough to, I think it's tough to look otherwise. I think you have to give um, a few kudos to a Ronnie Stanley and an Orlando Brown, certainly the rookie there, a Mark Andrews, and then defensively to see, I think another year of maturation of Marlon Humphrey. Uh, those guys would get some uh, honorable mentions. I think AFC NFC championships coming up this weekend. Who do you like? Well, in the AFC, I mean, Tony, you take a look at it and break it down. And while Kansas City is most certainly capable of winning that game, let's look at the head coaches. Who are you going to pick, Andy Reid or Bill Belichick? You're going to go with Bill Belichick. Who are you going to go with, Tom Brady or Patrick Mahomes? Now, Mahomes at this point is a physical specimen, but Tom Brady has all the experience in the world and uh, still a pretty good arm. Um, so, you know. I'll take their offense against Kansas City's defense, even though they played well against Indianapolis. And, you know, for that matter, uh, you break it down. I know New England hasn't won much on the road, but they haven't had to play much on the road. But um, I don't see how you can't lean Patriots in this one, given Kansas City's playoff history and Andy Reid, for that matter. And what about the NFC? Yeah, I mean, I'd like the New Orleans Saints in this one. I just think they have a more balanced team. I like their defense better uh, than what uh, L.A. has. And, you know, Drew Brees has the experience there as well. And I know L.A. played it once before, which makes the game really, really intriguing. But New Orleans gets this game at home again as well, 
which I think uh, helps. And they got a good test by uh, by the Eagles, where L.A. didn't get as good a test against uh, against Dallas. And I'm not sure that uh, L.A. is going to be able to impose their will against New Orleans the way that they did against Dallas, which was pretty shocking, to be honest with you. Yeah, I think the Saints, they're, they're going to have to overcome the loss of Rankins on that defensive line because, you know, the, the Rams really ran the ball well against the Cowboys, which really surprised me. But we'll see. It's going to be an interesting game, one of the f more fun weekends of the entire NFL season. Yeah, absolutely. And Tony, it's a good point. I think that's the X factor there is how big a loss is ranking there. And can the Rams end up running the football uh, the way they did or close to the way they did against Dallas? If that is the case, that takes a lot of pressure off of Jared Goff. And maybe that changes the dynamic in that game. That's that's going to be the area to watch. Well, there he is, Mike Popovic from 105.7 The Fan and WGMD down at Mar Delmarva's Peninsula. By the way, Mike, I didn't even address this. Did the earthquake affect you guys at all? Uh, it did not. You know, a lot of people didn't even feel it. A few people did, but the majority of people that we talked to didn't even feel it. I think because it was so deep uh, that it didn't make as uh, big an impact. Uh, but uh, that's certainly interesting to say the least. When it's kind of spooky because that's how tsunamis yeah. start, you know. <laughs> well, thankfully, yeah, and thankfully there were no tsunami warnings. Uh, it wasn't uh, necessary for them to be able to do it. Uh, but it certainly got a lot of hits on our Facebook page and, and Twitter sure. account yesterday when uh, we reposted that uh, that information. And we all were went through that earthquake a couple of years back uh, when in Virginia. Well, I guess back 2011 now, about eight years ago. Um, well, there he is. Mike, thanks so much for joining yeah. us. Mike Popovic from 1057 The Fan and WGMD. Tony, thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Michael Crawford. He does Game Changers, a really analytical piece for the Russell Street Report. Don't go away. Why PMI? I get asked that question all the time, and I love answering it. I've been leading this team for 16 years, and PMI has been and remains an industry leader. We get all the support of an industry leader national company while managing our loan flow locally. Our realtor partners and our customers get a team committed to customer service. They also get a team that knows our local markets. We closed 2,300 loans last year and the future looks very, very bright. We love telling our story and would love to help you with your next transaction. Reach out to me or anyone on my team anytime. We'd love to help. And welcome back into the Russell Street Report. I'm Tony Lombardi. Joining me now by Skype via the Mobile One Hotline, he does Game Changers for Russell Street Report. His name is Michael Crawford. Michael, welcome into the program again. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me on again. Uh, really enjoyed being on last time and uh, look forward uh, to the topics we're going to hit on today. Absolutely. Let's get right to it. I know you do a really interesting breakdown. And, and folks, why don't you share your, your Twitter handle, Michael, if you could, just so people can follow you, because what you do on Twitter is amazing. Oh, thanks, Tony. Uh, yeah, my, my handle is at uh, Abukari. That's A-B-U-K-A-R-I. Nice. And you would, you're going to want to follow Michael because he just breaks down not only just Ravens games, but things that seem to pertain to what Ravens fans might be interested to are in, in terms of schematics and in terms of how plays unfold and where they break down. So it's really interesting. I know I've learned a lot just from following Michael this season, so I'm, I'm really proud that he's part of Russell Street Report. Let's get right into the, the game plan for the Chargers, Michael. You know, when I talk to some people at the Castle, they were really impressed with the game plan that the Chargers staff put together to combat Lamar Jackson. Just give us your overall assessment of what they did and if this is something the Ravens are going to be worried about or be concerned about going forward and how they have to, you know, in order to be productive with Lamar Jackson. 
Yeah, I mean, you, you got to give a ton of credit to the Chargers for that plan and, and how well they executed it. I think a lot of um, attention sort of went to the seven defensive back package, you know, lining up safeties inside at right. linebacker. Obviously, that's going to put uh, some extra speed on the field, and that's going to help with a guy like Lamar at QB. Uh, you know, those guys can get out a lot faster to to protect the edges than sort of your traditional linebackers. But I really, when I studied it, I really gave probably the bulk of the credit to the Chargers defensive line. I thought those guys really executed uh, their one-on-one matchups. And to me, I'm not going to take anything away from the scheme because I I think that they did sort of tweak some things from that week 16 game against the Ravens. But uh, for my money, it was really more about uh, that defensive line sort of winning their one-on-one matchups. And and to be quite frank, in in some instances, just whipping that guy across from them. And I don't know if there's a whole lot you can do in terms of adjustments when that's happening. I mean, obviously there's some things that maybe you could, you could, you could tweak, but when you have guys who are consistently winning their one-on-one matchups on the defensive side of the football, it makes it tough. Michael, one of the things that I was impressed with is that you mentioned that they had seven DBs on the field. And by nature, you would think, okay, the Ravens should come in with their jumbo packages and just lean on them away on them and just wear them out that way. But to their credit, those seven DBs, they weren't just running all over the field. They were disciplined with their assignments. They were. They really were. And that that's actually, I think, an, another key that maybe kind of flew under the radar in, in you know, the uh, how well they performed defensively was that discipline. Uh, you could go back to the Week 12 game against the Raiders. And I think John Gruden hit on something there that really kind of stuck with me. He really felt like the key to controlling the Ravens run game was stopping their inside run. He really didn't think it was Lamar Jackson per se. He's certainly not ignoring Lamar and and, and how, how he hurts teams, but he really felt like if you could take away that inside run first, you could do enough things on the edges to sort of um, corral Lamar and, and minimize the damage that he could do. But that starts with discipline. Those guys on the inside have to have their eyes in the right place, have to be focused on their keys, and they can't get caught up in taking the cheese of what uh, the Ravens sometimes do with that backfield action uh, to sort of pull those guys out of position. And so I think the Chargers, to to the point that you just made, those guys really were disciplined, and uh, that certainly, certainly uh, was a big factor in, in how, how well they were able to perform. Michael, we know that it's a copycat league, so are the Ravens, should they expect more of the same sort of approaches defensively from other teams when they when they put Lamar Jackson on the field? I think yes and and no to some extent. I think yes because I, I think you saw it even before uh, the, this, this last wild card game with the Chargers. I think you saw it a little bit in the Kansas City game. Um, not too much, uh, not, not as much to the same extent in Atlanta, but I think they tried it at times too, where, uh, this sort of scrape exchange concept where you'll see, uh, a defensive lineman, uh, sort of pinch down inside and force Lamar to keep the ball in their zone read game. So they, they automatically want to force the read. They want to take away the dive read, the running back and force Lamar to keep the ball. And then you have a, a linebacker, an athletic linebacker, or sometimes a, a safety who drops down into the box who scrapes over the top of that guy and outside. And then you typically already have a cornerback outside their line uh, against wide receiver uh, for, for contain. And so I think that's something that, yes, you will, con- you, you will continue to see that in terms of how teams want to defend their read game, but in terms of their overall power run game, I don't know, man. I, I, I think 
that stuff had worked really well for uh, the previous seven weeks. Uh, and then all of a sudden, people sort of felt like, well, there's the blueprint. I really just don't know if there was so much of a blueprint as how people don't like this answer because it, it sort of leaves you wanting more. But I really think it was about guys winning one-on-one matchups. And I don't know if enough other teams can do that consistently week in and week out to say that there's a blueprint. Yeah, because the Chargers certainly are talented on the defensive side of the football. Now, one of the things that came out after the game, I forget the gentleman, the writer for The Athletic, who covers the Chargers for The Athletic, he mentioned that in the locker room there was a lot of discussion about the Ravens tipping plays, you know, almost like a, a baseball pitcher tips his pitches. And what they were saying was that whenever the Ravens ran, this almost happened 100% of the time, Ronnie Stanley was square to the line of scrimmage. When they, when they passed, his left foot was back. Similarly, whenever they would run a cut belly or a, a, a counter, they would come in with a tight end that was in motion that would stop behind the other tight end. So if you're a defense as talented as the Chargers and you're getting plays tipped to you like that, advantage goes to, to the Los Angeles Chargers. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think any time that you can sort of pick up a tail or a tendency, obviously that gives you an advantage. But I think that was a little bit overblown. Uh, I know Ken McCusick, who also... I think Ken, who also writes for Russell Street, he went back and really looked at that because, as you know, he scores uh, the offensive line. And I think when that came out, uh, he actually, I think it's Sam Fortier. Uh, I might be mispronouncing Sam's last I name. Think you're I think right. he's yes. a writer for The Athletic. They, Ken had Sam on his podcast, on the Film Study uh, podcast. And uh, so when, when Ken did his scoring, he went back and he really looked for that. And he said, yeah, on certain plays, uh, when you saw some of those things that the Chargers described, was it a run? Yes. But on other plays where they described that exact thing, it wasn't a run. So I don't know if that was you know, something that was 100% accurate. Uh, obviously, it gives you an advantage. It doesn't have to be 100% accurate if you only get it you know, uh, however many number of times in a game. Uh, it does give you an advantage. But it makes me think about like divisional games, right? Think about you, you play your divisional opponent twice per year, and if you have the same coaching staff and some of the same players, there's a lot of carryover there from year to year. And so in those games, I would imagine the opposing defense has a pretty good read on what you're doing. But yet, you know, and we've seen it, those games sometimes are a crapshoot. You never know from game to game who's going to win and who's going to lose. Uh, so I think teams are always looking for tails for formational tendencies. I think they always study that stuff. Players and coaches always study that stuff. Uh, but I think it may have that narrative may have been a little bit overblown uh, in, in this particular game. And then if the Ravens wanted to, they could use that narrative to their advantage next year, have Ronnie Stanley drop his left foot back when there's a running play. If they're going to go off those. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So. Right. It's that whole, that whole misinformation, disinformation kind of thing. Right. Now you mentioned, or you tweeted out that since week 11, Jackson's completion percentage on first down was 68.6%. Talk about that a little bit, Michael. And why do you think he's so effective on first down? And can they parlay that into other down and distance situations? Yeah, that really surprised me, actually, when I saw that um, sort of a pet project that I'm working on. Obviously, I think uh, a, a lot of fans of the team and people who follow the team closely look at Jackson as a passer and, and see that as probably the biggest area uh, or area where he has the biggest room for improvement going from year one to year two. And so I, I'm sort of charting those things and I've gotten through all of those first down throws. I'm going to be moving on to second and third and so forth here. But uh, of those first down throws, um, 
middle of the field kind of routes are the ones where he was the most accurate slants. I think he had eight, eight slants that he completed. Uh, I think there were some curls mixed in there, uh, a couple throws, obviously out to running backs on check downs and flats. So sometimes that number, uh, you know, can be skewed a little bit. That's why I wanted to dig into it other than just, you know, sort of leaving the number there because some of those throws uh, certainly are easier types of throws, but to his credit and to uh, the, the credit of the offensive coaches, scheme those throws, right? Who, who cares whether they're easier or not? That's what you want. You know, you actually want to give your quarterback easier throws right. and easier reads and, 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 and things to sort of get him go, uh, get him going early, early in the down and early in games. And so I think, yeah, you continue to build around that. I think on first down, you tend to get more predictable coverages. It's probably the down where you get the most predictable coverages uh, coming out. And so, I think you can use that to your advantage and scheme more of those throws, more slants, more curls, more shallow crosses, uh, more things out to the running backs in the flats because you, you have a fairly you know predictable uh, coverage that you're that you're expecting to face on first down. Describe the type of receiver, Michael, that would fit best into that sort of schematic. I think there's probably a couple of different types. Uh, I think we saw. Uh, Lamar had a pretty natural connection with Willie Sneed. So I think if you're looking at sort of that lateral, uh, laterally agile sort of shifty guy that can work in the slot, create sort of instant separation uh, in there, I think uh, those kinds of routes uh, are things that Lamar throws pretty accurately right now. And also I think sort of maybe uh, some bigger bodies uh, like tight ends, if you're looking at Mark Andrews or Hayden Hurst or even, you know, Nick Boyle, Max Williams, uh, that that big body who can sort of work in the seam and work in the middle of the field. And maybe they don't create separation quite the same way. It's not necessarily with with lateral agility or quickness, but it's with sort of that that basketball rebounding, you know, sort of approach where you sort of just body the guy up who's a little bit smaller than you at safety uh, and sort of box him out. So I think it's more than just one night that can work, but I think whichever type or combination of types that, that they, you know, they decide to sort of target, you definitely want to focus on throwing those routes across the middle of the field. I think that's his strength right now, but that doesn't mean that he's not going to have to improve throwing uh, those routes outside the numbers and deep down in field. Cause obviously you can condense the middle of the field with coverage too, and, and try to take some of those things away. Right. We're speaking with Michael Crawford from Russell street report. He does game changers for RSR. Michael, looking at the other side of the football and defense, I know that you're a big CJ Mosley fan, but Patrick Onwaso came on really strong. Kenny young flashed earlier in the season. Is that enough? I'll go, I'll harken back to, this 80-20 rule that Steve Bishotti likes to use, if you can get 80% of the production for 20% of the price, you got to go with that. How does that factor in when you consider Peanut and Kenny Young beside each other in 2019 for 20% of the price that it would, have, it would cost to bring back C.J. Mosley? It's appealing, sure. I mean, obviously, C.J. is in a position where he's probably going to be commanding a top of the market deal at the inside linebacker no position. And, you know, you're talking about Luke Keekley money uh, <laughs> when you think about that. And uh, that's a pretty, that's a pretty scary proposition from a cap standpoint. Uh, yeah. Peanut uh, definitely had a really good season this year. I think you, you started to see him continue to take steps uh, developing in that inside linebacker role opposite CJ. I think Kenny Young had about as good a rookie year as you probably could have expected from him. You know, I don't know that, that fans maybe really had a high expectation of what Kenny would do. But I think if you look at some of his numbers across the board, 
he checked off a lot of the boxes on the stat sheets, whether it was solo tackles, whether it was forced fumble, whether it was pass defense, whether it was sacks. He did a little bit of everything. Uh, so combining the production from those two guys, could you get at or near, like you said, sort of 80% of the production of C.J. Mosley? On paper, it looks like you could. But one of the things that makes me a really big fan of C.J. is I think there's a lot of intangible things that he does that maybe don't necessarily show up on paper. Uh, it's not just about relaying the calls uh, in from Wink, because I know there was a little bit of a split there with Weddle doing it sometimes and C.J. doing it sometimes. But So you get that call, right? And you may say, well, anybody can relay the call. But what about the checks and the adjustments that you have to make after you get that call based on what the offense shows you or how they, how they adjust to what you're showing them? And I think CJ does that really well. And I think he actually sets up guys at times to make plays, even though he may not make the play himself. So how do you assign a value to something like that? Hey, that's why guys like Eric DeCotta and those other guys in the front office make a lot more money than me. They're smarter. So (laughs) I'm going to put that on them to try to figure out how do you assign a value to that. But to me, I, I think that's a pretty important thing. Yeah, Michael, you bring up some good points because you don't know how CJ's intelligence pre-snap may have contributed to Patrick Onwaso's productivity post-snap, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes 100% it makes sense. That That's the thing that's really hard to tell from, from sort of the average fan standpoint. Uh, that that I look at it from, and 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 I really try to study it closely for to to sort of sort of pick up on those things if I can. But honestly, if you're not in your meeting rooms, if you're not there at practice, the portion that's not open to to the media, you really don't know just right. how much uh, he's able to sort of set guys up for success. I think uh, Terrell Suggs is another guy who does that. Sometimes we don't always maybe necessarily give the credit. Sometimes you say, well, it looks like Suggs is is maybe slowing down a little bit, but even when he's not making the tackle, he's making the play. And I think that that definitely has a value uh, for both of those guys. Matt Judon finished strong, just like Anwasa did. Talk about his season and talk about what you can expect from him in 2019. Yeah, I think, you know, the consistency was the biggest thing for me with uh, with Matt Judon. I think we've always seen the flashes. We've seen the glimpses. He's a guy who can rush the passer. Uh, he's got some ability to sort of drop into coverage and make some plays in sort of the short areas of the field, um, you know, sort of that multidimensional skill set. But it was about sort of consistently always putting that together, not disappearing in certain games or disappearing for stretches of games. And I think except when he ran into the tunnel when it was third down. Yeah, and that kind of disappearance, I'm cool. Right? If you're <laughs> celebrating after a big play and you want to disappear, you, you go right ahead. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I think that has sort of been uh, what you, you would hope to see from him going going into this part of his career, and, and we saw that down down the stretch run there. And, and hopefully, you know, now we can just see that continue into next year and see it sort of start from game one uh, and continue all throughout the season. So uh, I think the future is bright. Uh, from Matt, and uh, I'm excited to see where he goes from here. Good stuff. There's another guy who's a questionable return for the Ravens. He's an unrestricted free agent. He replaced the guy who left as in, un- in free agency back in the day, Pernell McPhee. Zadarius Smith replaced him. Very similar players, but it doesn't seem like they have a Zadarius Smith waiting on deck for Zadarius Smith. Talk about what he might, with the loss of production, if Smith does uh, head out elsewhere. 
Yeah, Zadarius is a guy that's near and dear to my heart. Been a big fan of him ever since the Ravens drafted him, even going back uh, maybe two years ago when he kind of battled through some injuries. And, you know, he had he had a, a good start to his rookie year. Where I think he might have had five or five and a half sacks. And then that second year, I think he might have had a half sack, maybe one sack, and, and the numbers kind of really fell off. And then you saw this year sort of the bounce back. So I, I really do attribute that that one down year to injury. I think he's a guy who's got a lot of versatility you see him rush the passer from outside. You see them move him inside in obvious passing situations. And he's just too quick for guards. You know, they'll line him up over a guard and he'll make a quick move and either beat him inside or beat him outside. So, you know, to have a guy who can rush from various positions like that uh, and give you that versatility is is obviously a, a great thing to have. I don't know if they're going to be able to afford him. You know, we'll see what he commands out there. That outside linebacker sort of rush linebacker market can 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 be a little rich. And then when you're talking about trying to bring back a guy like CJ, that gets factored in too. Um, and then you look at, you know, if he were to get away, you're probably looking at some combination of Tim Williams and Tyus Bowser, you know, trying to replace some of Zadarius's production. And I know people probably have been a little underwhelmed to this point with, with those two guys. But uh, as we, you know, sometimes see the development curve for every player is different. Right. Sometimes we we tie where somebody is drafted to how quickly we think they're supposed to develop and what their their performance level should be. And it doesn't always pan out that way. I mean, look no further than Brashad Perriman. Sometimes it just takes longer, you know, and, right. and there, there can be injuries can be a factor in that. Other things can be a factor in that. But it's not I, I heard this from a person much smarter than me. Uh, development isn't always linear. Right. We want to look at it at a graph and see it as a, a straight line, always ascending up. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it goes up. Sometimes it goes backwards. Sometimes it goes down. Then it goes back up. It just depends on the player. So I wouldn't give up on those guys yet. Uh, they're obviously talented, have some some different skill sets. Uh, and, and we could see a breakout from one or, or, or both of those two guys next year. That would be a big bonus going into 2019. Before 2019 approaches, let's talk about, or at least the 2019 season, let's talk real quickly. Who do you have winning both the conference championship games this weekend? Well, as a Ravens fan, as much as it hurts me to do this, uh, it's hard for me to bet against Tom Brady and okay. Bill Belichick in a championship game. I would love to see the Chiefs pull off the win, but uh, I just I just can't bring myself to bet against those guys uh, in, in a high-stakes game like this. And on the other side, uh, I actually like the Rams. I actually like the Rams' chances um, to, to take that game from the Saints. What's cool is that both of these teams have faced each other earlier in the season. And so uh, kind of like we were talking about earlier with the, the Ravens and the Chargers in that, that second meeting, what, what kinds of things can you learn and who's going to have the best adjustments? That's something to look for in these conference championships games, too, who's, who's going to adjust and uh, sort of those little fine details uh, that can give the edge in, in these rematch type of affairs. Yeah, it's going to be fun to watch. I'm actually going against you in both of those games, Michael. I'm, <laughs> I'm picking the Saints to cover the three-and-a-half-point line, and I'm picking the home Chiefs to cover that three-point line. So we'll see how it goes down, but it's always going to be fun. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here on the Russell Street Report. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me. We'll talk to you soon. All right, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll wrap up the show. Like 33rd Street was to Colt fans, Russell Street will become legendary for future generations of Raven fans. Not only is Russell Street the team's address on Sunday, it's now home to the website voted Baltimore's best five years in a row. You've known them as Ravens247.com for years, and now you'll love them as RussellStreetReport.com for many more. 
There's nothing else like it for Baltimore football fans. Trust me, RussellStreetReport.com. Baltimore's home for football 24-7. Hi, and welcome back to the Russell Street Report. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that we wanted to do these feel-good stories, things that make you really be proud about being a Raven. And as we've all experienced, we've grown in friendships. We've, the number of friendships, the depth of friendships has changed because we got together as a community over a football team. So I've asked our listeners and viewers to submit some stories of their own. And we did get one from a gentleman named Kim Nagy, and I'll share that with you now. And it goes like this. If you haven't noticed, I love football. For those who haven't heard why yet, and even for those who that have, I'm sure I come across as an absolute nut job akin to Robert De Niro's Silver Linings playbook character. I always loved it as a kid, but didn't have any true connections to a team after my first move to Korea. As an adult, after the inception of the Baltimore Ravens, football was like a friend to me when I felt alone and homesick after moving back to Korea again. The Ravens flock fandom energy carried across the ocean and made me feel just a bit closer to home. Flacco's jersey was the very first NFL jersey I purchased, and sadly, my last because we deemed I brought bad luck when I wore it on game day. I was proudly wacko for Flacco, as they like to say, but I had no problem expressing disappointment as well. He always remained a class act. He doesn't have enough personality, they say. No, he's just truly a humble human being. If you ever question this, it's even more apparent now in his handling of what will clearly and ultimately be his departure. I'll never forget the Mile High Miracle. I'll never forget all those many playoff games I got to see my team have a shot at. I'll always remember your ability to quietly but explosively send the ball all the way. I'll try to get over how this departure came about, and I hope you just go off with your next team. Football isn't just a game. It's about the people. It's like reading a book. All of the emotions mass amounts of people get to feel from reading the book ultimately connect you by the emotion and experience you all now share. You're rooting for the good guy to save the day. You're rooting for the love. You're rooting for your team together. It's not just a game. And that's from Kim Nagy. Kim, we thank you for submitting that. And we invite more of you to send such stories to me at tl at russellstreetreport.com. Thanks for joining us today and join us again next week.